My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and we are privileged to have each of you gathered with us this morning. We are currently working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've been in it for a while. We will be in it for a while longer. And today we begin chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. So if you have uh, a Bible, I want to invite you to, to take that out and to follow along with us as we read and work through that text this morning. Also, just if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Uh, the information should be on the screen for you. Right as we get into our, our text this morning, before we do that, I actually want to draw your, to, your attention to a couple resources that we have available um, for the children and for families. And so we have two resources that we labor uh, regularly every week to, uh, to make new and fresh. Uh, we have one, it's a resource guide. It's for parents as you consider, what does it look like for me to disciple my children? That's something that God's called uh, each of us to do. And so you say, well, what does that look like for, for us to do that? Uh, we've, we've, we've got a resource available that can help you throughout the week to ask good questions and uh, have good things to talk about and discussion starters and, and whatnot. And kind of also help you as you lead your family to also stay kind of connected with the other families as they go throughout the week. I also want to draw your attention to a uh, packet uh, that we keep uh, toward the back. It's a clipboard with several resources on there, coloring sheets and, and activities and things like that for you to work through. So I want to just make sure that you're aware of those. These are great resources that we have. I know that my family has helped. I'm helped as a father and as a discipler in my home. Um, and so I, I want to make sure that you are aware of those things. So anyway, let's, let's go to the, to the Word of God and read. Before we do that, I just want to say this. This mic is crazy hot up here, and it's like... I feel like I'm, in a, I'm preaching in a barrel, so I feel like I could tweak that a little bit. Um, anyway, let's go to the, the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says, Mark chapter 6, there you go, uh, 1 through 6. It says this, And he, speaking of Jesus, went from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in their synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, as we come to this passage, we recognize that it is significant because you've written it for our help. And so we come to it now. We sit under its teaching. We pray that through the spirit and that you would en enliven our eyes as we look, that we, your people would be helped as a result that we'd be convicted of sin, that we would be encouraged, and we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you just to walk through this brief section of Scripture with me this morning, and we'll go relatively quickly, and along the way, I plan to unpack the passage um, through uh, just simple explanation, and then I want to kind of reserve what I think would be the most um, helpful piece of application for the end of our time together. And so I'll typically give a main idea at the onset, uh, at the onset, but I'll actually reserve that towards the end. And so let's just walk through the text together, making some observations. There in verse number one in chapter six, it says, he went away from there. It might be helpful for you to be reminded of where Jesus is coming away from and where he's going to. And so Jesus had just come from the east side 
of the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Gerasenes. You, you remember he had been on the west side in Capernaum there in that area preaching and he got into a boat after he preached there and he went across to the other side. And uh, there you'll, you'll remember that that place is not inhabited by Jews, not predominantly anyway. It was the region of the Gerasenes. And there on the shores, Jesus met a man that had been running through the tombs. The man that quite literally lost his mind um, and for one reason, because he had been found by a legion of demons. By many demons, he was being possessed. And Jesus delivered this man there on the shores from these demons. And there was a lot of other information and a lot of other parts of the story there that we'll just kind of leave for a few weeks back. Um, but uh, just to kind of give you a place uh, where this is taking place. So Jesus leaves there. He comes back across the sea uh, to the, the northwest side there into the city of Capernaum. And remember, this is Jesus' home base for his ministry. This is where most of the time where he was kind of in and out of. And so these people knew him well. It wasn't his first time coming there. And as he arrived, the crowd immediately began to gather again around Jesus. One man out of the crowd comes forward. His name was Jairus. And I've wrestled back and forth between calling him Jairus and Jairus, but uh, nobody's perfect. But anyway, this guy, the ruler of the synagogue, he shows up and he says, Master, will you please come to my daughter? She is sick. And uh, we can imagine that he said something to the effect of, if you don't come to her aid, that she'll die. We can all relate to that. As we look around this room, we hear the cries of precious children, and we're reminded even when they cry, they're precious. We look at our, our, our sweet daughters, and we look across the room, and we see our, our handsome sons, and we say, what a terrible place to find yourself in, that your, your child is on what we would assume would be their own deathbed. And so Jesus is approachable. He's interruptible. He goes with this man and heads towards his home. And, and while, the, while he's heading that way, the crowd swarms in around him. And everybody's touching everybody, and it's a nightmare during COVID, right, uh, that we wouldn't want to, that to happen, but it's happening right there. Everybody's rubbing shoulders, and all of a sudden, somebody touches Jesus in a, in a unique way. Jesus feels power go out of him, and he turns and says, who touched me? And it was this woman. She had had a, a disease, an issue of blood for 12 years. Jesus turns, and he talks to her, and he, he corrects her. He explains to her how she was healed. He tells her to, to go and to be healed of her sickness, even using the word salvation, be saved. He was interrupted there, and so then he continues to go on. It's found out, hey, this, this girl, this daughter of Jairus is now passed on, and so is there any need, the question is raised, is there any need to bother Jesus anymore? And yet Jesus is not deterred. He continues to go with this, uh, this man towards his home. Of course, he holds the crowd back and he says, hey, you stay here. We're going on alone. He only takes a few of his disciples, uh, the, the, uh, the inner circle, if you will. He takes them with him and they go and Jesus raises this little girl from the dead. And of course, there's lots of information there at the end of chapter five that we'll leave in last week and we'll leave in chapter five. But this has just taken place. And now, chapter six, verse one, it says, he went away from there. And so now you know where that there is. That there is Capernaum. That there is the home of Jairus. And it says in the next phrase there that he came to his hometown. Now, Jesus' hometown, some of you might know. I'll, I'll give you a hint. Oh, little town of... Wrong. It's Nazareth. Oh, little town of Nazareth. This is where Jesus was from. That was a trap. That was a test. I'm so sneaky. Yeah, Jesus' hometown was not... 
Bethlehem. Uh, you remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was not actually from there. And uh, many of you probably already knew that, and I still tricked you anyway, so you can't trust the pastor. But Joseph and Mary, they were only visiting Bethlehem at the time because of a census. And so just by God's sovereignty and as the way things fell out, when Jesus was about to be born, Mary and Joseph found themselves there in Bethlehem, and Jesus was born there. That's where Joseph's family was from, and so they returned to that area to be counted among the census. And so Jesus is born in that little town of Bethlehem, but that's not where he was raised. I'll give you a, just a fun fact if you remember this from the nativity scene and from the stories that we read at Christmas, but Jesus was actually in danger in some sense at the time of his birth. And what had happened was there was a king by the name of Herod that uh, he was a little bit jealous, to say the least. And so he thought, well, if there's a king born of the Jews, I don't like that. I rule over the Jews. And so I'm going to try to kill any child. And so that was found out. Uh, Joseph was warned. And so Joseph takes his wife, uh, Mary, and takes Jesus, and they flee to Egypt. And so Jesus spends a portion of his childhood there in Egypt. But that is also not where Jesus' hometown was. Wasn't, they were not there in Egypt too terribly long. Uh, theologians argue back and forth as to how long he was there, but he wasn't there terribly long But until he finally came to his hometown of Nazareth. And so there in that small uh, town located in the hill country uh, outside of Galilee, about 25 miles from Capernaum, is where Jesus was raised, there in the foothills. Jesus would spend his childhood. He would go to school. He would make friends. He would learn a trade. He would watch his friends grow up and many of them even marry. And he was as much a part of that community as you are of yours or you were of yours. He came to his hometown. Maybe for some of you that uh, kind of stirs up some emotion, maybe some pride, maybe some guilt, maybe some anxiety as you think about your hometown and all the stories that that, uh, that town could tell about you and likely does behind your back. This is where Jesus is heading to. It says that he has his disciples with him, that his disciples followed him. That's there. It's, it's an it's a interesting thing. We don't want to just pass over this idea that his Jesus' disciples followed him. A couple things we could bring out from that. One of the things I would like to just say this is they're still following him. <laughs> they're still following him. You remember when Jesus, he called his disciples there in the, the beginning of Mark. And then in chapter 3, he, he calls the, the exact 12. He's like, you guys are going to be my disciples. And he says, you're going to stay with me and I'm going to teach you. We, we talked about that a few months ago. And here through thick and thin, through storms, through being run out of a city, through being accepted, being rejected, they're still with Jesus. They're still being prepared. They're still being taught. They're still observing. That was such an interesting passage that we looked at there in chapter three. He called them to be with him. They're still with him. They're still following him. We talked about this a few months ago. I made this statement. In order to be sent from Jesus, you must first be found with Jesus. In order to be sent from Jesus, you must first be found with Jesus. Here are these disciples. They recognize that they've still got much to learn. They've still got much to, to observe. 
still desiring to, to be with Jesus here, they followed him even to his hometown. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this. You can imagine how exciting it would be if uh, my fourth grade teacher were, were to show up this morning for a little show and tell of her own. And she were to begin to tell you about all the exciting things that I had done when I was in fourth grade. Or maybe my neighbor across the street, you would love to hear him tell stories about me. And so maybe there is this like little bit of the disciples that are saying, hey, we know all these good things about Jesus. And we never see him do anything bad. But now we're going to get home and we're going to hear all the good stories around town. And so maybe there's a little excitement there with them. But for the most part, what, are they, what do we know about them? Well, they're, they're following Jesus. They've been with him through the good and the bad, the thick and the thin this is a different ball game. You're going to be able to see Jesus, who, by the way, was fully God and yet at the same time, fully man. They're going to get to see him in his, his hometown, on his own streets, as it were. And here in Nazareth, they'll learn a valuable lesson with their master. Verse 2, it says, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. By that phrasing, it seems that Jesus had arrived before the Sabbath at some point in time. We don't know. Perhaps a couple days. Maybe he's checked in with his mom and went and saw grandma and, and uh, went and checked in went down to the carpenter shop and said hey to everybody. Went and got the local donuts that were just delicious that everybody else wanted to, to get. And he's getting himself ready for the Sabbath because on the Sabbath, he was going to begin preaching. That's exactly what takes place. Maybe he's giving a tour of the area. You can imagine Jesus walking down through the, the town exclaiming how much everything had changed. Man, it looks so different now. And he's pointing out all the locations of these previous stories, you know, like this is, you know, the, where this is a chipmunk's nest or something like that. You know, this is, he, he's telling them all the things about his hometown, but not on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he's ready to preach. Goes into the synagogue and here he's given the opportunity to expound the reading for the day from the Torah. And from the collective of the Gospels, we understand that this was Jesus' practice, that on Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogue and he would teach. Wherever he found himself, that's what he would do. You remember Jairus from last week? He's a ruler of the synagogue. What does a ruler do? Well, a ruler of the synagogue, he was basically a caretaker, Maybe somebody that would do a little bit of sweeping, trimming the, the hedges out front, but then also organizing who would be speaking that day, also caring for the Torah there in that, uh, that copy there in the synagogue. Jesus checks in with him likely, and he's, he's, he's able to speak that morning. He's a rabbi. He's got his teacher, or he's got his, uh, his group, his followers with him, which is a sign of a rabbi. And there in Nazareth synagogue, he opens up the word of God and he preaches from a parallel account there in Luke 4, we, we, we find a little bit more out about what Jesus speaks on, what he preaches from there that Sabbath morning. Luke chapter 4 tells us that he read from Isaiah chapter 61. Isn't that wonderful, by the way? Think about this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus preached a sermon in a synagogue there in Nazareth on a text almost a thousand years old. Think about that. And it's the same text. It's the same words. The same words that he had, we have. Isaiah 61, this is what Jesus read. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He goes on to read. He says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted.'" 
to proclaim, li- proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This is what Luke says that Jesus read. And here's, this is a beautiful thing. We're gonna skip over. We're gonna stay in Mark for the most part, but just, I, we've got to supplement this other thing that Jesus says that, Mark, that Luke records rather. In chapter four, verse 20, it says this. And Jesus, after he had finished reading, he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all in the synagogues, all in the synagogue, their eyes were fixed on him. And this is what it says. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He sat down, he rolled the scroll up, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Isaiah 61 is a prophetic passage concerning the coming Messiah. Jesus is saying, hey, that prophecy about the Messiah, it's fulfilled before your eyes in your ears today. How many times had Isaiah 61 been read in that very synagogue? We don't know. But no other time could that statement have been true that today it was fulfilled. And yet Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. But look at verse two. It says, and many who heard him were astonished saying, we're back in Mark. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus read, but after he gets done speaking, as he's speaking, it says in verse two of Mark six, and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In Semitic languages, many can often refer to all. So couple that with the fact that the word is found toward the beginning of of this phrase or this part of the sentence. It emphasizes the fact that the crowd was great. Coupling that with the fact that they're in Nazareth, this is Jesus' hometown. And they've been aware of what was taking place. It's a small town in a small region. And so they know what Jesus has been uh, up to the last few years. And so you know that news travels fast. They, this, uh, this statement, all, or, or sorry, many, probably leans more towards all. They're all there gathered, right? They all wanna, they're all around the synagogue. They're all hearing what Jesus is saying. They're all astonished. That word astonished, it means to be utterly amazed. It's, it kind of has the idea of, you know, jaw dropping on the ground, speechless. I don't know what to say. In some ways, this is almost like a class reunion. Jesus is back and they're looking at him and they're just astonished. They're shocked. And to, to be honest, this, this, this word astonished, it has a bit of a neutral feel to it. It's shock. It's awe. And unfortunately, their shock quickly turns to disdain, even disgust. Do you remember the, the, the passage in chapter three that we looked at not long ago? The scribes from Jerusalem, they come down to Capernaum and they declare what about Jesus? What do they say? That he is possessed 
And that the works that he does and the speech that he has, he gets it from who? Do you remember? Satan. Satan, The prince of the demons. Beelzebul, right? In that same passage, what else happens? Jesus' family shows up. They say, the guy's crazy. We've got to take him home. We've got to shut him up. He's going to, he's going to continue giving our father a bad name. He's going to continue giving Nazareth a bad name. And by the way, you've got to take that into consideration. Part of the frustration that his hometown had towards him was that he was bringing some heat. He was causing some problems for them. They were in danger of becoming the town known for heretics and false messiahs. So they look to Jesus and likely with the same suspicion that the scribes had earlier in chapter three, they look to him and they think it's this power has either come from God or it's come from Satan himself. And it's looking like they're attributing this work to someone other than God. And they know about Jesus. They know he's not been schooled in in some rabbinic manner. And yet at the same time, he's acting as if he's a rabbi. And many are calling him rabbi and even following him. They know he's been trained as a manual labor. So they ask, where did he receive this wisdom? And who authorized him to speak in this way or to act in this manner? Even to the common villager, the, the options were limited. Right? They're looking at him, they're saying, where did you get this at? You're either possessed by Satan, this is probably what they're thinking, or you're empowered by God. It's sad. They hear Jesus speak, they hear the word of God speak, and they recognize the wisdom in his teaching. They heard about the miracles that he had been performing and the things that he had done. You know, you say, well, they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and all these things, and yet news still traveled. This is... This is not the Stone Age, right? So they know what's being said of him. They know what he is saying. And yet, as one commentator put it, in in spite of what they heard and saw, they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness which characterized this one who had grown up in their village. And so although their initial reaction was positive, their excitement was replaced by disapproval. We see that in how they cynically ask, where did this fellow get these things? Where did he get this at? An ordinary, unschooled villager like the rest of them had no business teaching with this type of assumed authority or wisdom. In verse three, they say of him, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? I want you to notice some things about verse three. Is not this the carpenter? Basically, this is what they're saying. Isn't he just a common worker that works with his hands just like the rest of us? He thinks he's better than us. Nazareth is not known for producing rabbis. Nazareth is not known for producing messiahs. He's just a common worker. Look at him, his hands are dirty. Look at the calluses. He doesn't even dress like a rabbi. He's a carpenter, come on. And you may not be thinking anything about the phrase, the son of Mary, but you should. You should. That was a disparaging comment, if anything in here is. Men were the sons, and these days 
not of their mothers, but of their fathers. When you introduce somebody, you would connect them to their father. This is Peter, the son of Joseph, right? Of the tribe of Benjamin. It's likely Joseph is dead at this time, but even still, had they been giving him any type of honor and not trying to attack him, they would have called him the son of Joseph and not the son of Mary. Go on to list his brothers and sisters. Of course, we know that Joseph is not his biological father, and I think that kind of comes into that comment as well. Rumors probably had circulated to that effect that Jesus was illegitimate. His mother was some, had some, some type of impurity, some type of a sinful sexual relation. He was the result of that. That was likely the rumors going around. So these rhetorical questions, they let us know that they don't really know Jesus and they don't want to know Jesus. They just want him to stop. They find no reason to believe that he possesses the very anointment of God, that he is the chosen Messiah. And so calling him a carpenter placed Jesus on a level with themselves. He's no better than us. He's from Nazareth. As a matter of fact, he's worse than us because he doesn't even have a father. And I don't mean to defend them, but they had always known Jesus. They grew up with him. They'd seen his life. And be reminded, though Jesus was human, he was without sin. And that's something you notice, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't that be something you'd notice? Yeah. And yet at the same time, this extraordinary young man has become ordinary. We'll talk more about how that actually takes place, but there's a warning in that. That though they knew the extraordinary nature of this man, Jesus, they passed him off over time as ordinary. Jesus speaks to that as well. But they said things like this in their minds. He's like us. He's no better than us. He's from Nazareth. He's good, yes, but he's not God. He's not the Messiah. There's a certain amount of pride in that type of a statement. When we say things like this, when we think this type of thing in our hearts, I know all I need to know about him. And he's not all that he's cracked up to be. Isn't there a lot of pride in that? Oh, I know him. That's so condescending. Even as it comes off my mouth, I just want to smack myself. Oh, I know all about him. But we've all said that. You've probably heard that about me. I know all about that, that pastor. And so because they know him, oh, we know who he is, it says that they took offense at him. And this is shocking. I want to frame this up for you. It's shocking and it's scary. Listen to this. God showed up. He read God's word in God's house on God's day to God's people. And what happened? They were offended. That's shocking. It's shocking. 
But there's a warning in that. Brothers and sisters, there's, there's a warning for us this morning that that can happen. That's impossible that God can show up, his word even be read in his house to his people on his day and people be offended. And yet it happens. And so what's so scary about that? Well, I would ask the question, has that ever happened to you? It could. That God could show up and read his word in his house on his day to his people and you still be offended and you still miss it. They took offense of Jesus because of his lowly, ordinary origin. They were effectively prejudiced against him because they knew him or they thought they knew him. They saw no reason to believe that, that he was any different from them. They thought he was claiming to be something that he couldn't possibly be. They were unable to explain him and so what did they do? They rejected him. My friends, this, this is a scary, scary comment. Why did they take offense? Was it his manners? Had he picked up some odd language, uncouth in some way? No. Was it his habits? Was it his customs? No. What was it? It was his message. It was his message. By the way, there's something we can pull out of that statement as well. If, if people reject you as a Christian, let it be because you preach truth and love and not for some other reason. Sometimes we, we like to just kind of lump all those things together. Well, he said they would hate us, didn't he? He said they would. Well, maybe it's because you're a jerk, right? Maybe it's because you're not kind. Maybe it's because you're motivated from selfish, for selfish reasons. That's not true of Jesus. He was rejected, but because he spoke truth in love. Some of you can relate to Jesus, or at least you think you can. You say, true that, Jesus. No respect in the hometown. But at the same time, you know, need to know this. You can't relate. You, you may have struggled to get respect in your hometown, but for different reasons, and probably for good reasons. There are real struggles for a pastor like myself living in his hometown. Let me tell you. Just yesterday, somebody was at a birthday party with my wife, and they said, hey, you need to know this about your husband. In fourth grade, he was a terrible kid, a terrible student. I heard that. I thought, what in the world? Why would they say that about me? She said, oh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, you were terrible. I, it's probably hard for you to imagine that, and I'm just pouring gasoline on the fire as I convey this to you, but I thought, well, that's not true. And then I thought about it, and I thought, well, I guess it probably was true if uh, the measure of a good kid was one that paid attention and wasn't trying to be the class clown. Um, yeah, that probably was true. And so there are struggles associated with a man like me trying to be a, a reputable pastor in my own hometown. And I have to admit, when I felt the Lord calling me back to Hagerstown to be a part of, of this that we are doing this morning, I thought, I don't know if I can handle that. I don't know if I can face all of that because a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own country, nor does a pastor. And yet I can't relate to Jesus, though. And neither can you. 
Why? Because Jesus was hated for speaking truth and love. Jesus was disrespected for claiming to be who he actually was. And that's not been our story. We earn, more than likely, we earn every single piece of disrespect that we have ever garnered. And yet Jesus cannot relate to that. Look at verse 4. How does Jesus respond to this sad response? What does he answer back? He says to them, verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Pastor Tim brought this to my attention that there's a double negative in there. I don't know if that really hangs any of you up, but it, it kind of didn't me, but I, I could see that that's actually, that is a, that's a double negative there. What's, what's he saying? Even in Jesus' day, this was a, a kind of a common proverb or, say, or saying. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a, a prophet is always honored and respected everywhere, but it does mean this, that wherever a prophet might be honored, it's certainly not going to be in his hometown. So he might be honored somewhere else, and he might not. But if he is honored anywhere, it's probably not going to be his hometown. It's probably not going to be in his own household. And why is that proverb true? Because, for the most part, until it's speaking of Jesus, there is some reason for us to say familiarity breeds contempt. This is a modern translation if you will it's the equivalent or it's a cousin a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household we would say it a little bit differently we would say familiarity breeds contempt and yet Jesus here he's in a sense he's comparing his own experience to that of the prophets who were also dishonored by their own people People thought of Jesus and John the Baptist in those days as as prophets Jesus isn't claiming to be a prophet necessarily But he is drawing a similarity. He's drawing a a picture between the two of them. He's saying, hey, there's a parallel here. He's far more than a prophet. And yet he kind of accepts that. And he says, hey, this is true of me as well, I suppose. At least it's coming true. Really, it, it predicts his parallel rejection by the nation of Israel. It recalls back to chapter 3 where Jesus' family expressed the same opinion almost as maybe that of the scribes in Jerusalem. He's, he's either crazy or he's possessed by a devil. And they try to gag him. They try to rescue him from himself. And to stop his activities, his, his ministry there that God had called him to do. He didn't earn that. And yet it took place. Look at verse five, it says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I'm gonna take a few moments and and just kind of unpack some of the the troubles that arise from verse five. Really only one trouble that comes to my mind. At at first glance, it's it's, it's pretty puzzling. It, It seems at first glance to be saying that Jesus is unable to heal and perform miracles because no one believed in him. And when I, when I kind of read that, my mind kind of goes like to Neverland, like where we're told that it, it, when someone states that they don't believe in fairies, like a fairy just falls out of the sky and dies. And that the only way that you can revive them is if you say, I do believe in fairies, and you start to clap your hands. And how petty is that? Is that what they're saying? Is that what Mark is saying about Jesus, that he couldn't do any mighty work there because nobody would believe in him? And so he would just maybe try to 
do something and conjure something up and try to heal somebody. And he'd just be like, it was working just a few days ago and now it, it doesn't work. Is that what this is saying? Well, that's, that's not what Mark is telling us. But you ask us, the statement is clearly made. Jesus could not do any mighty work there. Why couldn't Jesus do a mighty work there in his hometown? Well, there's two reasons I'm gonna give you this morning that will help us to differentiate between Jesus and imaginary fairy, fairies that don't even exist. And so here's the first one. Faithless people don't come to Jesus. Faithless people don't come to Jesus. This is just a simple, logical observation. Jesus was not able to miraculously heal many people because many people did not come to him for healing. It's very simple. It doesn't imply that Jesus tried to heal some people and he couldn't do it. He's praying, he's, he's, he's wondering what's going on, he's, he's, he's sticking his tongue out a little farther and standing on one foot. That's not what is happening. Jesus is not powerless to work miracles when a person lacks faith. But he wouldn't heal in the absence of faith either. Unless it was in keeping with his purpose of ministry. And so from time to time, throughout the, the New Testament, we see Jesus healing people. About half of the time, it says they had faith. And that's why they were healed in some way. That was one of the components to the equation. Other times, it was to increase their faith or to, to demonstrate that he was who he says he was. But either way, Jesus is not without power. He wouldn't heal somebody that didn't want to be healed. And so a hurried reading may give you the idea that Jesus tried but was unable, but that is not true. Jesus is no more limited by their lack of faith than he would be to resurrect. Let me draw a parallel, or my own parallel this morning. To say that Jesus could not heal them because they didn't have any faith was like saying Jesus couldn't resurrect from the dead if he wasn't dead. Think about that. Of course he can't resurrect from the dead. He's not dead. He would have to what? Die first and then he can resurrect, right? And in a similar way, how can he heal somebody that's not come to him? Saying, I, heal me. That's not the way. That's not the way that he's been working. He would preach a message. He would call folks to, to repent of sin, to believe the gospel. And they would come to him with their illnesses and with their sins and he would forgive and he would heal. And so why could Jesus not do a mighty work? Why does Mark word it that way? Because faithless people don't come to Jesus for healing. But there's more to that and it's, it's very similar, but there's another point. And so the second point, answering this question, why didn't Jesus do any mighty works in Nazareth? It's number two, Jesus... Jesus' message requires faith. Jesus' message requires faith. Notice I didn't say his existence requires faith. Aren't you glad for that? There's, a, there's enough people out there that said, I do not believe that he exists. And I'm so thankful that it's not us claiming he does believe and our subsequent clapping that revives him in some way. But I didn't say that his existence requires faith, but Jesus' message requires faith. It's ironic, by the way, that you're existence does require faith but let's move on look at for look at verse well actually skip back and if you have your bibles open flip back to chapter 30 or sorry 5 and look at verse 34 maybe it's on the same page maybe it's one page back 
What does Jesus say to this woman who interrupts him as he's going to heal Jairus' daughter? He says, and he, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed or be saved of your disease. Of course, Jesus is not saying that our faith, your faith, woman, has stiff-armed God. It's forced him to heal you, and now that's why you've been healed. It's not a matter of naming and claiming it. Whatever you say, you, for, you can force God to do. No, your faith doesn't override God's sovereignty, but it is how we approach him, and he has determined that to be true. That his message requires faith. That's what he says, and so that is true. Hebrews 11, verse 6, what does it say? And without what? Faith. It is impossible to please him, speaking of God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must what? Believe. They must have faith. They must have faith in what? That he exists. And what else? That he rewards those who seek him, who come to him with their illness, who come to him with their need. They must have faith. And we see this verse here, this passage from Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith. We see that enlightening what, what's happening in the life of Jesus and his ministry, particularly there in his hometown in Nazareth. And again, there's a warning for all of us here. Nazareth missed out. They missed out. They disrespected, they devalued the Son of God, the Messiah. And it says he did not do any mighty work there. May that not be said of your family. May that not be said of your life. May it not be said of this church. That he couldn't do a mighty work here. He couldn't rescue people from their sins. He couldn't deliver people from their addictions. Why? Because they, they wouldn't come to him. They didn't believe. May that not be said of us. But may we actually bring our issues, may we, may we bring our sickness and our sins to the feet of Jesus in faith, believing that he will heal and that he will save and that he will tell us what he told that woman in verse 34. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Be saved of your disease. Verse six is sad. If you don't think it's sad, it is. It says he marveled because of their unbelief. In Jesus' humanity, he's not anticipating this reaction from the people in his own hometown. It's interesting. They were amazed at his wisdom. They were amazed at his miracles. And yet, Jesus is amazed at their continued unbelief. He's shocked. And what does he do? It says he went about among the villages teaching in that area, we assume. And so synagogue to synagogue, hillside to hillside, Jesus moves through that area preaching the gospel of the kingdom with little reception from his own people. That's sad. They missed out. So that's Mark's brief account of Jesus visiting his hometown. Before we move on, though, I, I, I want to talk about that statement that Jesus makes because there's a warning in there for us. It needs to be unpacked. 
Remember what I said, a modern version of Jesus' quote is this idea that familiarity breeds contempt. And so why does a prophet not have honor in his own hometown or among his own family? Well, it's because he's familiar. Those people are familiar with him, we should say, and familiarity breeds contempt. That's a statement, widely accepted. The more you know somebody the stronger the chances of contempt are in your relationship. And so I would ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that familiarity actually breeds contempt? What's contempt? It's not a word many of us use on a daily basis. It's the feeling that a person or a thing, maybe this will be on the screen for you, the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration worthless or deserving scorn. The feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless or deserving scorn. And so is that a true statement? That the more you know someone, the more that you'll recognize that that person is beneath your consideration, that they're worthless or that they themselves deserve scorn. Let's first look at this, what this statement is not saying. It's not saying that abuse breeds contempt. It's not saying that neglect breeds contempt. It's not saying that mischievous activity breeds contempt. That's obvious. You you may think of a story. Well, I have a friend that was in a tough relationship, and uh, they had been married for like 10 years, so they were like crazy familiar with each other, and then uh, she had had enough abuse, and so familiarity breeds contempt. Well, In that scenario, it wasn't familiarity that bred contempt. It was what? It was abuse. And so this axiom is is clearly saying that objective familiarity alone breeds contempt. That just because you're a prophet known by somebody else, that that breeds contempt. It actually says, hey, this person has no honor. It's implying that there are no other factors at play. No other variables to, 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 to secure or tie down. In other words, just getting to know somebody, becoming more familiar with them breeds contempt. Now, the case that we have before us is it, it involves men developing scorn or contempt for Jesus, for God. And so f- follow me here. One of God's attributes is that he is righteous, is it not? He does all things well. He does all things right. And so in this case of Nazareth and Jesus, can we rule out abuse, neglect, mischievous behavior in elementary school, middle school? Can we rule all that out? Yes, it has nothing to do with the fact that they have contempt for him. And so is there more to the equation? I want to give you this statement here. It's undergirding what we see happening in this story. This is the main idea. True familiarity with God coupled with a corresponding level of appreciation for God, will not breed contempt, but rather an ever-increasing admiration for God. Think about that. There's a, it's, I know it's a, it's a pregnant statement here. True familiarity with God, coupled with a corresponding level of appreciation for God, will not breed contempt. True familiarity plus a corresponding level of appreciation does not equal contempt rather it equals admiration the opposite i want to unpack this idea for you quickly 
I'm going to break it down into two statements. The first is this. Familiarity without understanding breeds contempt. Familiarity without understanding breeds contempt. This hometown crew, they thought they understood Jesus, but they didn't. They thought they knew who Jesus was, but they didn't. And it left them open to miss the blessing that God had for them. And so I would ask you this morning, do you know God? Do you really know God? Before you answer that, I want to warn you, the word familiar, that I'm familiar with something, it assumes a certain level of mastery. Now, it doesn't say I'm the grand master of whatever it is, but it does say, I'm, if I were to say, do you know Excel? And you respond to me, I'm familiar. You're not just saying, I know that that's a program Put at, produced by Microsoft. You're not just saying that. You're saying, I know how to use the program. I've dabbled around in it. I know in my way around the, the, the program, I'm familiar with that. But do you really know God? Job, in the Old Testament, he's tempted to question God in connection with all that he's lost, all that he's suffered. God surrounds him with a storm of questions of his own. And what is he? He helps him to see that God is operating on a plane far higher than him. He's working in ways that we'll never understand. And he says, Job, you, you, you won't know. You can't understand. You don't know what I'm doing. You can't see what I'm doing. Psalm 92, the psalmist says this, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. We assume that if we meet someone that we've mastered them, we say, I know all about them. I know them. But yet that can never be the case with God. The more that you learn about God, the more that you realize you don't know about God and you can't know about God. And yet we, in our arrogance and in our pride, assume that we can know God and in that way we undervalue him and we sell him short. We think we've plumbed the depths of this being God. Yes, but I know all about God. Just because you stayed in a Holiday Inn, just because you took a couple theology courses doesn't mean that you have pegged God and you know everything that there is to know about him. There are secret things about God that we could never know. His ways are inscrutable. His, his judgments, they're unimpeachable. What do we do? What do we say? What do we do? We don't, we don't know. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we, there are things that we can't know about God. Of course there is. He's communicated us clearly through his word about his character and his identity. And yet we cannot exhaustively say we know God. We know all it is. We know all that is involved in this defining God. And so there's this idea that you'll never truly understand God. And upon each level of understanding is another, another level of, way of awe and wonder. And I want to say this very, very clearly. If you think that you know God and yet you are unimpressed with him, you do not know him. If you don't look at God and shudder in your soul, you know very little at all about him. So when it comes to knowing God, we have to exude humility. Why? Because he is beyond exhaustive comprehension. We see that clearly and on a different level as Jesus visits his hometown and they say, well, we know everything that there is to know about him. And yet they missed the most important thing about him, that he was 
the Messiah. And so because they didn't have a proper understanding of him, when they heard him speak, they rejected him. But not only is a true understanding, along with a humble mind necessary to avoid contempt for God, but so is gratitude. So is gratitude. The second thing I want to point out as I kind of tweak this idea of familiarity breeds contempt is that familiarity without gratitude breeds contempt. And so I asked you a moment ago, do you really know God? And I'll ask you this too. Do you appreciate God? Do you appreciate God? Just to put it quickly, this is a bit cliche, but I think it's helpful. If tomorrow, everything that you did not thank God for today was taken away, what would you have? Think about that. If tomorrow, hey, if you're, if you're five years old, I want you to think about this. If you're, if you're 85, think about this. If tomorrow, everything you did not thank God for today was taken away, what would you have? What would you have? Do you appreciate God? Do you, do you have gratitude for the gifts that God has given to you? And I'm not talking about your favorite toy I'm not, I'm not even talking about your spouse. I'm talking about things that are even more important than that. How about prayer? How about the fact that we can pray to God? Have you taken that for granted? Or have you taken advantage of that? The fact that he's extended to us his ear and said, call upon me. Share your burdens with me. My, my burden's light. Let me carry that for you. Pray without ceasing. Have you taken advantage of that or have you taken that for granted? Do you really truly appreciate the fact that he has, he's offered us this prayer? How about the fact that God has given us his word? Think about that. If you've ever witnessed a miracle, if you've ever witnessed a sign from God, it's this right here, 66 books. 40 authors, thousands of years in the process of it being formulated and, and canonized, it all fits together, no contradictions. Mankind for hundreds and even thousands of years has attempted to destroy it and to disprove it and it only stands that much firmer. Do you appreciate that? Do you take advantage of that? Not even considering the fact that countless men have given their lives to translate that and have even been burned at the stake and, and heads lopped off because they did this. They gave this to us. They were used of God. Have you taken advantage of that or have you taken that for granted? You say, I would never do that. If I lived in Nazareth, I would never do that. I would recognize that Jesus was the gift that he was. I would come to him with all of my burdens and yet this morning you've not prayed and you've not read your Bible this week. Think about that. You have no gratitude, or do you? And so I don't say this in order to crush you, but in love to say, hey, we as the people of God have the word of God. We have the ear of God. Do we appreciate that? Do we truly appreciate that? And perhaps you have spent this week in prayer and 
and reading the word of God. I don't bring these things up to stoke your pride or even to condemn you, but to help us to assess whether or not we are taking the gifts of God for his children for granted. When it comes to familiarity with God, we must have gratitude. If not, we have the spirit of pride as if we've, we know everything that there is to know about God. We've, we've solved it. We've settled it. We, we figured it out and we have no need to be thankful. It makes me think of Jesus's correction to the churches, to the church there in Revelation. They had gotten over Jesus. And so I want to offer two things. If in some way you have gotten over Jesus, you've, you've forgotten the gift that prayer is. You've forgotten the gift that the word of God is. You've forgotten the gift that the, the church gathered on Sunday morning is. And these are just to name a few. If you have, would you ask God this morning that he would renew the passion for him and for his gifts, that you would renew this, that he would renew this gratitude within your soul for the gifts that he's given to us. If you're a Christian, that's what I'm asking you to do today. I think that comes from the text. Would we not miss what he's done for us? Would we not miss who he is? Would we be grateful? I'm reminded of John chapter one, verses 11 through 12. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. There's a parallel between the way that Jesus was received in Nazareth and the way that he was received or rejected, I should say, by Israel in general. He was from Nazareth, and for the most part, they rejected him. He was a Jew as well, and for the most part, they also rejected him. But John says, some did receive him, and those who did receive him that came to him in faith, what did they get? They, to him, to them, I should say, Jesus gave the power to become the children of God. The irony in this passage is that the Jews, what do they believe? They already believe that they were the children of God. Why would they need Jesus to give them something they already had? Familiarity breeds content, my friends. When it's not coupled with a true understanding and a corresponding level of gratitude. So my question for you, finally, this morning is this. You've heard what Jesus has to say. You've heard the gospel. The gospel is this, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that although God is holy and you are sinful, the cross of Christ is more powerful than you know. And that if you'll turn from your sins to God, and ask for forgiveness based on what Jesus has done in his death and in his resurrection, then you too can become a child of God. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? Will you appreciate that for what it is? Or you continue in your sin and rejection? Church, this idea, meditate on it. True familiarity with God coupled with a corresponding level of appreciation for God, will not breed contempt, but rather an ever-increasing admiration for God. May this be realized amongst this church. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. May it be said of Hagerstown Church that we would receive it, 
We would seek to understand it in humility and that with gratitude we would apply it. May this be said of your people, not just today, but throughout the weeks, years to come. May you be glorified. We ask that these things be done in your name, Jesus. Amen.